Another episode of GI Pearls, the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Literature Review Podcast. This is episode 62 for the month of July 2023. This is a free podcast, so the only way you can support it, because I don't want your money, is to leave a review on iTunes, which I would greatly appreciate, and tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. All right, let's go to those journals, shall we? The first paper published in GIE January issue, looks to compare surgical sleeve gastrectomy to endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty. It seems that GI docs have been stealing from general surgeons for decades now. This time it's sleeve gastrectomy that is up for grabs. Maybe. Endoscopic version of this procedure is obviously incisionless, where you introduce an endoscopic device into the stomach and suture back and forth, essentially shrinking the gastric cavity resulting in a pseudo-sleeve gastrectomy, sort of. A gastroplasty, if you will. In this study, they looked at an accreditation database, four years' worth of data, and looking at adverse events, readmissions, reoperations, and other adverse events, and then looked at what's better. They found that the two procedures were comparable, sort of, so let's go over the data a bit. Primary aim of the study was short-term 30-day outcomes. They compared about 6,000 ESG endoscopic sleeves versus over half a million surgical sleeves. Looking at weight loss first, percentage of total body weight loss and BMI reduction was better with surgery. Mean change for endoscopy of BMI of 1.77 versus 2.36 for surgery. Most importantly, major adverse events were similar, but low rates for both procedures, but the rates of readmission, reintervention, and reoperations were statistically higher after endoscopic gastroplasty. It is possible that this is because the new procedure and endoscopists were more cautious because of this, but it is unclear that this is as good as it gets, or when the procedure receives much more wider adoption, will the rates of adverse events and readmissions go up and be much worse than a well-established surgical sleeve gastrectomy that is, that it may not be worth it in the end. Unclear. At 52 weeks, endoscopic sleeve had 12.6% decrease in total body weight compared to controls. So it is a good tool to have, but surgical gastrectomy likely is better in terms of outcomes than ESG at this point for total weight loss. And now that more advanced endoscopists are picking up this procedure, they better have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital so they can manage complications. Patients with FAP an autosomal dominant condition, form hundreds of polyps in the colon and have up to 100% lifetime risk of colorectal cancer. Often these patients lose their colon. There is also an increase in gastric cancer, though the risk is relatively low, about half a percent. But apparently low-grade and even high-grade dysplasia is not uncommon in polyps in the stomach. This study came out from Mass General and published in January issue of GIE, looks at natural history of dysplasia in the stomach polyps in patients with FAP, and they looked at about 120 patients, which is as many as you probably need to get an idea what kind of polyps these patients get and give you an idea of risks they face. In these patients, 82% of them actually ended up with a colectomy, and these patients had endoscopic surveillance data for upper endoscopies for almost 10 years, with a mean of about 10 upper endoscopies. It's interesting that only about 80% of these patients and not 100% actually had gastric polyps of any kind, 
and they had all sorts of polyps, mostly funding gland polyps, about 70%. And then there were some tubular adenomas, hyperplastic polyps, foveolar adenomas, and others. What about dysplasia or cancer? 10 patients, about 9%, had gastric high-grade dysplasia in polyps ranging from 5 millimeters to 20 millimeters, mostly as discrete polyps, but sometimes in a confluent field of polyps as well. Most high-grade dysplasia was not limited to one type of polyp. Also interesting is that there is no intestinal metaplasia to speak of in any of the gastric mucosal samples. Mean interval between starting surveillance and ending up with a high-grade dysplasia was 18 years. Two patients developed gastric cancer, and the average age of diagnosis was 62 years, and both had high-grade dysplasia multiple times in multiple polyps. And both of these patients had this cancer found in a crowded field of large polyps. In terms of family history, no patient with high-grade dysplasia had any family history of gastric cancer. So because high-grade dysplasia was found in general in all types of polyps, it behooves the endoscopist to sample all sorts of polyps you find in the stomach. But if you find high-grade dysplasia, it does not mean that you consistently will find diagnosis of gastric cancer. So that's a good thing. My guess is that when it comes to gastric cancer and FAP, the worry is completely warranted, but it is unclear how much benefit people are getting from surveillance based on these results. It may be similar to what we observe with Barrett's esophagus. I guess what you really need to watch out in these patients is not one or two sporadic polyps, but rather a carpeting of polyps where the risk of cancer is highest. I ran across this other paper recently. It's titled Association of Life Expectancy with Surveillance Colonoscopy Findings and Follow-Up Recommendations in Older Adults. And it is in JAMA Internal Medicine. The basic premise is that what happens to that penultimate colonoscopy, say patient is in their 70s, and you find some polyps. Do you recommend they come back in 10 years if polyps are hyperplastic? Do you tell them don't come back at all? You'll be in your 80s. If polyps are adenomas, do you tell them to come back in 7 years, 5 years? They looked at over 5,000 colonoscopies and look at what were the recommendations by dividing patients into three groups. Those with life expectancy over 10 years, 5 to 10 years, and less than 5 years. Overall, 8% of patients had advanced polyps. Those with longer life expectancy or more advanced clinical findings were more likely to be told to return. For example, among patients with no polyps or only small hypoplastic polyps, 58% of those with life expectancy less than 5 years were told to return for future surveillance colonoscopy. And this is the crux of the issue. Those with low life expectancy are told to come back for another colonoscopy. The true question is... Who has the burden of making that recommendation? And who has the burden of following up on that recommendation? My uneducated opinion on this subject is as follows. I think GI doc, who is likely meeting a patient for the first or second time ever, is tasked with telling a patient when to come back, all things being equal. They're the ones reviewing the pathology. They're the ones looking at current guidelines and making a recommendation. If it is obvious that a patient is in their 80s, I think it's reasonable to say don't come back. But if the patient is there in their 60s or 70s, I think it's totally okay to write, come back in 10 years or 5 years, and not sit there trying to figure out what exactly is mortality risk over the next decade. Mainly because I think it's a moving variable, and what's one mortality risk today is not the same 5, 10 years from now. Sometimes it's not the same a year from now. So when a patient is due for a repeat exam 5 or 10 years later, this is the time to decide whether or not the colonoscopy is warranted. A patient can decide for themselves. A PCP can guide the patient, 
or an outpatient visit with EGI doc could be arranged if there is some nuance to that discussion. And maybe this is a cop-out, but I think making a recommendation is different than actually carrying out a recommendation. Two separate things, you know. And here I think is a better paper on the same topic, even though this is a mailed survey to 600 GI docs and 1,800 primary care doctors. So take that with a grain of salt, since this is more of what people say they do rather than what they actually do. Title of the paper is Physician Decision-Making About Surveillance in Older Adults with Prior Adenomas, Results of a National Study, published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. A reminder that if colonoscopy is normal and the patient is 75 or older, current guidelines say stop all surveillance. This is clear. It's less clear what to do when there are polyps found. So in this study, physicians were less likely to recommend surveillance if patients were older, in poor health, and had lower adenoma risk. Only 20% recommended surveillance for patients above the age of 85, versus 49% for patients above the age of 75. And it is interesting that internal medicine and family medicine docs were more likely to recommend surveillance than GI docs. Both groups said that they would find a decision support tool helpful. So I think what you need is a tool that you put in patient's age, maybe a few comorbidities, and findings at last colonoscopy, and it spits out your colon cancer risk in the next five years, or something like that. Even better, it'll be an AI-driven tool that puts your day of death right in your electronic medical chart, predicting when you'll die in the future. Oh, sorry, mister. You don't get to come back for a colonoscopy in five years. Our computer here says that you will be dying next year. H. pylori is still frequently found, even in the United States. These days, it is mostly new immigrants and older adults. Many times, it is possible to leave people with the infection if they are on the older side, but many times you still need to treat them. Here's an example why you should consider treating them. If they are on a blood thinner or even aspirin, you treat them to minimize the risk of peptic ulcer disease. This paper published in The Lancet is a randomized clinical trial called H. pylori eradication for primary prevention of peptic ulcer bleeding in older patients prescribed aspirin in primary care. This was a double-blind randomized trial of treating H. pylori in patients who are on aspirin done on older adults. They were randomized to clarithroflagyl and PPI versus placebo twice daily for a week. And most of these patients were diagnosed using urea breath test and not endoscopy. So it's not like they had history of ulcers which drove this. Also, none of these patients were on PPIs before, but all were on aspirin, low or high dose. So lo and behold, in the first two and a half years, there was a lot less bleeding observed in patients who completed H. pylori treatment compared to placebo, six episode in treated versus 17 in placebo group. And the number needed to treat to prevent one bleed turned out to be about 243 patients. So the effect didn't last too long, and waiting longer than two and a half years, the effect disappeared. Because this was done in the UK and didn't use the typical treatment that were in the United States, where we have a lot more H. pylori resistance. I'm not sure this will change many things. Most importantly, I don't think we are going to begin screening primary care patients for H. pylori infection if we're placing them on aspirin. But something to consider to sway you one way or the other when treating patients once you know they have H. pylori. It is pretty much accepted that after a few rounds of messing about with antibiotics for recurrent C. diff infection, you go to fecal microbiota transplant. And the traditional way of doing it is to take stool from a reputable donor and instill it in the colon of the recipient using a colonoscope. 
a pretty messy way of giving medicine, don't you think? FMT capsules have been around for a while, but this next paper titled Effectiveness and Safety of Colonic Capsule Fecal Microbiota Transplantation for Recurrent Clostridioides Difficile Infection is published in CGH, and it basically gives you somewhat of a real-world experience from six different academic centers. Here they let the clinician decide whether to use capsules or instead use colonoscope to deliver the payload. It was about 170 patients with capsule delivery versus 96 patients with colonoscopic delivery. Generally speaking, capsule patients were older, less likely to be immunocompromised, and less likely to have IBD. So how effective was it? At one month, cure rates were pretty much the same for both methods. And two months, efficacy was about 80%, again, for both routes. The 20% that were not cured had repeat FMT, and the second round had similar efficacy between capsules and colonoscopy delivery as well. Risk factors for FMT failure were older age and dialysis at baseline, and antibiotics after FMT. What's becoming more clear is that C. diff treatment is coming back around. We started with antibiotics, then turned to colonoscopy delivery of microbiota, and now we came full circle with introduction of microbiota by mouth as medication. As gross as it sounds, I think it's way better. One patient in the study who had a colonoscopy had an aspiration pneumonia and required hospital admission, so clearly taking pills is safer. And we already have an FDA-approved concoction of bacteria that you can take by mouth. I wonder how much it costs. Probably just a few dollars cheaper than a colonoscopy. But I do think that colonic FMT days are numbered. So what have I discussed today? First, a paper about sleeve gastrectomy versus endoscopic gastroplasty. Mean change for endoscopic procedure of BMI of 1.77 versus 2.36 for surgery. Modest losses for procedures that appear to be safe, but questions remain about wider adoption. Then I reviewed a pathology paper looking at dysplasia in gastric polyps of patients with FAP. And it turns out that cancers are found in patients with big field of polyps. And high-grade dysplasia can be found in any polyp type. Two papers spoke about our attitudes towards giving recommendations for older adults when returning for a repeat colonoscopy, despite low life expectancy. And my guess here is that we're blaming the messenger. And lastly, colonic FMT days are probably numbered due to all the capsule form preparations of bacteria that are coming out as cures for C. diff, which are quite effective. That is all I have for you today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls. I want to remind you that if you want to help me, please tell a colleague about the podcast and actually write a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. This is what mostly motivates me, your praise. I want to thank the last person leaving a review who named themselves Misleading Advertisement. (laughs) Your kind words are much appreciated. Okay, that's it for now. Bye-bye.